I'm excited to be here and continue our four-week teaching series, Studying the Life of Elisha. And so I invite you to turn to 2 Kings chapter 4. 2 Kings 4. I'm going to get there in a minute. But in the middle of like the chaotic world that we all live in today, I don't know about you, but it seems like uh, this last couple of years have been a little overwhelming. And maybe you have been stressed out and you have felt the pressure of that. And I've talked to many people who it's beginning to catch up with them now. You see in our culture around us, the great resignation as people are throwing in the towel on all they've been doing in their life for the last 5, 10, 20 years. And I want to encourage you this morning of what it looks like when you have hard times actually to lean on the Lord more. Didn't Pastor Darren do a great job last week as uh, we talked about digging ditches? I tell you, don't miss next week. We're going to be looking at a, another miracle that Elisha performs when he makes an axe head float on water. It's really cool. But what uh, I want you to hear from this uh, study together during these four weeks, if you're new to it, Elisha was the, the prophet in the Old Testament that performed more miracles than any other human being. In fact, Jesus is the only one recorded in scripture that got to see God perform more miracles. His predecessor, Elijah, didn't even perform as many. Elisha, when he is anointed, prays for a double portion of the Spirit, and he receives it. And it's the overflowing work of the Spirit of God in his life that changes lives around him and encourages people. And in the story that we're going to see today, if you're feeling overwhelmed and you've been praying for a new job, or you've been praying for that house, or a spouse, or you've been praying for uh, that next vacation because you just need a break, I want to encourage you this morning that if you're praying and God isn't always answering the prayers that you desire the way that you want, I will tell you and encourage you this morning that he wants to bring hope and provide you with what you need. And that's what we want to look at together today. You ready to study God's word, church? So this is if I'm being honest and vulnerable, my faith the last few weeks has uh, been stretched and grown in ways that I didn't want to grow. It hasn't, uh, I've had behind the scenes some hard things going on, some emotionally tolling things. And, you know, I know that's vague, but as a whole, God is on the move and caring for every need that we have today. And I can remember when we first started the church, like feeling that same type of feeling where it's like, I'm not in control of what's happening here. Do you realize when we planted the very first church at Clay Middle School in Carmel? I remember uh, looking around one that first summer and we were in this beautiful 550 seat auditorium and there were 50 people there. And I remember thinking, God, like, we were expecting you to do so many things. And I had been working like six day weeks uh, 14 hours a day, just like, and I was like, God, I can't do this anymore. I, and I made a commitment then that I was going to pray more and work less. And the next three months of the church, we had the greatest three months of the church that I've ever experienced. And I'm actually going to a conference in uh, Southern California, our annual conference. They asked me to speak there this year. And I, I'm, I'm going to be talking about, they said, we want you to do a talk on only God can grow a church. And I was like, I don't want to do that talk. I don't, I don't believe in like all that church growth stuff. We want to reach people for Jesus. And we want to multiply disciples and we want to send them out and be disciple making movement. But I began to realize like what has happened in the life of our church, only God could explain. And I don't share that lightly. And I want to look at when things are not going well, because some of you have sacrificed greatly for the Lord. 
You've been a part of other churches even and other small groups and you've been hurt and you've had poor experiences and you've started ministries and nonprofits and you've put yourself out there and it didn't work out the way that you thought. I want to tell you that you're not alone. The woman that we're going to look at in this passage has sacrificed greatly for the Lord in a time period where it was very difficult to be a Christian. And I don't know where we get the idea that if you become a Christian that you will no longer have pain and suffering in your life. Part of the human condition is this side of heaven, until Jesus returns, there is going to be pain and suffering. Unless you're two people in all of scripture, every single one of us is going to face physical death one day. The reality is the frailty of our bodies and the condition of our society is indicative of the way humankind has been since the rebellion in the Garden of Eden. And what I want to share with you today is how to have hope in this dark world in the middle of despair. You ready to study God's word together, church? Come on now. It says this in verse 1 of 2 Kings 4. The wife of a man from the company of the prophets cried out to Elisha. You catch that? She was the wife of a prophet, like one of the only prophets that there were in Israel. Now, Jewish tradition actually says, we don't know this for certain, but Jewish tradition says this is Obadiah's wife. Obadiah was a prophet that protected 50 other prophets from harm and provided and supported them. So it would make sense that she had no finances and he's going to die and he's going to leave nothing behind except debt. Verse two, or the second half of verse one, your servant, my husband is dead and you know that he revered the Lord. But now his creditor is coming to take my two boys as his slaves. See, in that culture, if you couldn't pay your debts, you didn't file for, you know, like foreclosure. (laughs) You didn't file for bankruptcy. They just came and took your children. And literally, for seven years, they would work as slaves, indebted servants, who would pay off the debt that they couldn't afford to pay. And so this woman who most likely got into debt because they had been following God and sacrificing to protect all these prophets, when her husband then dies, she's rewarded for all of that by having her two sons potentially being taken away and enslaved. Anybody else be a little frustrated with God at that point? And yet what she does here in this passage, rather than getting anger and resentment, she's honest with God and she turns towards God Look, it goes on in verse two. Elisha replied to her, how can I help you? Tell me what do you have in your house? She says, your servant has nothing there at all, she said, except a small jar of olive oil. And God, in her moment of despair, is not gonna give her everything that she wanted. She's not gonna get her husband back. She's not gonna get wealthy, but he's gonna give her exactly what she needs. And he's gonna use what she has right in front of her to do it. That in our times of need, God does not always give us what we want, but God provides exactly what we need. That's what I want to talk about today together. Will you pray with me? God, I just pause in the middle of all this. I know that for some of us, uh, maybe they're on their last leg of their finances this morning, like the woman in this passage. Or maybe we're here and we're on our last leg of our marriage our last hope for our children. We're on the last leg of this addictive habit that we can't seem to overcome. We're on the last leg of dealing with that same issue at work again and again and again. And so easy to want to throw in the towel. God, I pray that you would bring hope to us this morning. 
God, I admit in my own life that where there's broken relationships, when I actually pray for reconciliation, you show up. When I work so hard to try and create things, it doesn't always work the way I want, but when I return to you, God, and you show up, you provide us with what we need. So I pray, Lord Jesus, that we as a church family would turn to you now, that as we grow our faith and live on the edge of faith together, that we would understand sometimes things aren't gonna work out, and that is the most probable time where you could show up to bring hope in the midst of despair. Speak to us, Lord Jesus. We pray this in your name. And all God's family said, amen. Amen. You know, uh, I think we would all agree the last two years has been somewhat difficult for many of us. And I've talked to many pastors and leaders who have struggled over the last couple of years and the emotional burden of a pandemic and everything else that's happened in our society and the animosity and the vitriol that we see. How many of you have often thought about just uh, purchasing some land way out in the middle of a nowhere, a hundred miles away from human civilization, building your own bunker and living there with Jesus for the remainder of your days? And, you know, I, I think that sentiment rings true with a number of us, not for apocalyptic reasons. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that you see the brokenness of humankind and you're just over it. You're giving up. You don't want to deal with it anymore. What I find interesting in my life, what I find interesting in the New Testament, what I even find interesting in this passage with this woman, that in those moments where we have the greatest despair, lack of hope, that we have a choice, either to turn to God or to turn away from him. And because she turns him and is honest, and you can be honest about what you're going through and your frustrations, that he shows up in her life and that people get to see a picture of the provision of God. I don't know when you've been at your lowest of your lows. Many of you know we lost a child, and that was the lowest moment of my life. But I haven't shared this that often. One of the most overwhelmed periods of my life was 13 years ago. We had just had our first uh, son, Jake. Many of you guys know Jake. We were living in Southern California. This ministry we were leading with young adults was growing rapidly, and, and the economy was just tanking in the middle of all of that. And we lived in uh, Southern California in this little back house. It was 600 square feet. If you're like, what is a back house? That is a fancy term for a garage. People in California turn their garages into apartments and rent them out because they can make money. And so we're living in this back house, and we just had our first child, and the birth did not go well. My wife almost lost her life in the process. And when we went home, she had a spinal headache, and for a week couldn't even sit up because of the pain because her spinal fluid was leaking. And so I'm sitting there, I'm a new dad, you guys know me, probably not really great at that. And I remember sitting there going like, they put me in charge of a human life? This is not gonna be good. And, and here I got this little kid, I don't know anything, I, you know, I never like babysat or anything, so I didn't know what I was doing. My wife can't sit up in bed, and my son is getting sick to his stomach. So I call the doctor, they like bring him in, they look at him, he actually gets sick while we're in the doctor's office. Then they say his skin color is yellow and they test him, guess what? He's got jaundice. So they're like, go home and put him in some uh, sunlight to help with him. We had the most rain we'd ever had in Southern California for the next week. That next morning, I'm not making this up. My son's got jaundice. My wife can't sit up in bed. My son's getting sick. I'm going pulling my hair out, not knowing what to do. We've got no grandparents around. And I go out to the living room that morning. When I say living room, I mean the center of our, the garage that we're living in. And in the carpet, I hear splashes. And I look around, 
And the three inches of rain that we had, which is like the rain we got for the entire year, it, all of it was sitting in our living room. And we had a big lake in front of the television screen. My wife can't sit up. My son's got jaundice. I'm supposed to put him in sun. It's raining. And now I'm standing in a pond in the living room. I was so frustrated. I'm like, God, what are you doing? You been there? And, and I can remember just like getting so frustrated and saying, God, like we're doing all these things. I got ministry stuff I got to worry about. And I, like, and I just remember going, God, I can't do this. In the middle of that time, you know, God began to encourage me and reminded me, you know, I live in Southern California. The rain's going to go away. I live in American culture. We, we have laws and stuff. And so that the, the landlord was going to fix all of this. And they did. I was reminded that we had one of the lowest rents of any family I knew, and I was thankful for that. And I began to say, rather than just getting frustrated, I began to cry out to God, God, help us. And he sustained us and got us what he needed. And my wife got the spinal patch. The doctor finally returned a phone call and she got to feeling better. And we began to care for my son and he got rid of jaundice and like God began to work us through it. It wasn't easy. It was hard, but God grew my faith in that instant. It's not just too true for me as an individual. When our church first got started, did you know that we were like a month away from launching and a bunch of the money that was supposed to come to the church to help us get started, it was the down economy and it didn't come in. And so we had sent out flyers and we had even passed out a bunch of water bottles on the Monon Trail. I saw a family this morning that came because one of those water bottles 10 years ago. But we had done all this stuff and we are a month away and realized all of the, the budget we had for the equipment we needed for the worship service, we couldn't afford it. And so they were talking about delaying the launch. And I was like, guys, we need to pray. I've seen God show up, went through losing a child. We began to pray. And I got an email from this church planning organization in uh, uh, Florida. And they said they were going to give $20,000 to the church plant with the best master plan. I was like, this is perfect. We have a plan. So I mailed them the magazine and, uh, you know, submitted it. And I got an email back. I was so excited. They said, you are one of the nine national finalists for this church planting grant. I didn't find out till I got down there that only nine people applied. <laughs> so we spent all this money. We get down there and I realized some of the planters, the, the pastors there, they the people sponsoring them were on the board to make the decision of where the grant was supposed to go. I'm like, this isn't going well for us. And I told the team to be praying and we were praying. Eric can remember this. We were, the team was just praying and, and people kept telling me, God, God's going to provide this. I'm like, no, he's not. And I went through this whole process. I didn't know it. We were never going to get the grant until the third interview when they kind of grill you Shark Tank style. And I kind of got frustrated about what God had called us to do. And I started arguing with this one person in particular. We're friends now, but I started arguing. And it was that argument that actually caused them to give the grant to us because they saw that the Lord really was providing an opportunity here. We got the grant, we came back, we matched the resources, and we planted the church. I have seen time and time again, the greatest time to build your faith and those around you is not when things are going well, when things are, but when things are falling apart. And we think the opposite. I want to talk about God's provision, how this woman is calling out to the Lord and he's going to provide for it just at the right time. I'm asking us to reclaim. We need to reclaim the hope that we have in Christ, that suffering doesn't not mean that God isn't with us. It means that God's about to show up. 
And what most of us want to do as Christians, if we're being real honest, when things are hard, we want to avoid it. We'd rather just go retire down to Florida and hide in a pina colada for the next 30 years. But what if God wants us to deal with it and use that obstruction of uh, the suffering and the pain in our lives to demonstrate how real he is? When God provides, in 2 Kings chapter 4, number one, when God provides, you know that if you don't have what you want, God is what you need. When you don't have what you want, God is what you need. She wants her husband back. She wants all kinds of uh, resources, and God's going to provide what she needs by turning to him, not by going out and making it happen on her own. Look at verse 1 again. The wife of a man for the company of the prophets cried out to Elisha, your servant, my husband, is dead. And you know that he revered the Lord. But now his creditors coming to take my two boys as his slave. Elisha replied, how can I help you? Tell me, what do you have in the house? Your servant has nothing at all. She said, except a small jar of olive oil. And possibly Obadiah's wife, the wife of this prophet, who had sacrificed everything, is going to be given hope from just a few small jars. And she's going to go to her neighbors and ask them to help by just providing the jars as God instructed her through this prophet, Elisha. When she does that, I don't know about you, but I'd be losing my mind. I may say some mean words towards God and be super frustrated, but rather than being resentful and walking away, deconstructing her faith and saying, I I can't believe in this anymore, she actually deals with her questions and her problems and turns to God and struggles with him. And he's going to provide for her. So if you have lost hope in your finances, in your marriage, in your parenting, you've turned to despair because the Indianapolis Colts didn't make the playoffs this year, I want to tell you that there is hope. That in whatever you're facing, no matter the conditions that you find yourself in, the environment you find yourself in, your faith is not based on an environment. That for thousands of years, followers of God know that he created the universe, knitted you together in your mother's womb. Whether things are going good or whether things are going bad, he is still the same God. And so the question is, do we turn to him in our times of need? Number two, if you're taking notes, If we turn to him, then use what he's given you first and trust he'll provide what you need. Sometimes God has given some things right in front of us that we just take for granted. I'm sure that woman wasn't thinking, oh, I've got all these jars sitting around. Look look what happens here in verse three. Elisha said, go around and ask all your neighbors for empty jars. You gotta be thinking, she's like, what am I gonna do with this? Don't ask for just a few Then go inside and shut the door behind you and your sons. Pour oil into all the jars as each is filled. Put it uh, to one side. She left them and shut the door behind her and her sons. They brought the jars to her and she kept pouring. When all the jars were full, can you picture it? She said to her son, bring me another one. But he replied, there is not a jar left. Then the oil stopped flowing. The oil in this passage would have been expensive. God performs a miracle here, and from these jars that get provided, he's going to fill them up with this oil that is going to provide for their needs. Verse 7, she went and told the man of God, and he said, go sell the oil and pay your debts. You and your sons can live on what is left. All God needed in that instant was an empty jar. And I want to use that as an analogy to help us, according to the New Testament, what God needs from us today. You see, the Apostle Paul talks about this very thing, that for some of us, 
we're getting filled up by everything in the world constantly. And so what we pour out is everything in the world. Rather than being filled up with God and what he wants to do in our lives and overflowing with what he could do in our lives. And it doesn't matter the size of your jar. It doesn't matter what color the jar is, the shape, the size, whether it's a honey jar, a coffee can, a butter tub. It doesn't matter if it's empty, God could fill it up and use it. And it's an analogy in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay, which was a great 90s band, by the way. And this picture was that the, I always wondered what that meant, the jars of clay. It was a picture of us as human beings that we could be filled up to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are the jars. Oil in the Old Testament was always symbolic of the Holy Spirit. That because Jesus was crucified on the cross, in that moment in the Gospel of Matthew, it says the temple curtain is torn in two and the Holy Spirit no longer resides in the Holy of Holies in the Ark of the Covenant, but now our body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And so when we have a lack of hope and despair, what we need is more of the Holy Spirit in our life to bring joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, self-control. You remember that passage about the fruit of the Spirit? I talk to people sometimes who are like, yeah, you know the fruits of the Spirit. I need to work on that. I need more patience. I need to work on my patience. I need more self-control. I need to work on the self-control. They totally misunderstand what that passage is about. You can't work on it. We often say in here, if you're struggling in your life and keep giving into the same sin habit, you know, because you do it. We all do it. You've got the thing that you keep going back to, and after 5, 10, 20, 30 years, you're still struggling with it, and you convince yourself, I'm just not a good enough person. I have an obedience problem. God doesn't like me because I'm bad and I can't be obedient. That is not what the gospel says. The gospel says no matter how hard you try, you will never be obedient. When you are obedient, why are you obedient? Because God is at work overflowing in your life so that when you struggle with that same sin issue and you click on things that you shouldn't, you say things that you shouldn't, and you live with pride and arrogance and sin and, and you hurt people, the reason isn't because that you're just being disobedient. You have an identity problem because you're not so close with Jesus that he's just overflowing and working in your life. The fruit of the Spirit is seen in your life when the Spirit is at work. You don't have to work on it and work on this issue and that issue. You just need more of God and His Spirit overflowing in your life, and you'll get the whole gamut of it. So when I'm struggling, what I do is I go, and I was just talking to a young man this weekend who was struggling in an area and frustrated. I said, just go back, and I pray, God, I need more of you. And when I turn to Him, and I'm honest with Him with what I'm going through, I find that in my life, that's how I've broken addictive habits. That's how I've overcome sin issues that I've struggled with for a number of years. And I want to encourage you to not give up on hope that that could actually occur in your life because the enemy wants you to believe that. He wants to, he wants to steal, kill, and destroy. And he wants you to live in the, the sorrow and the pain and the suffering of this life and your own pool of sin for the rest of your days on this planet rather than being honest and turning to him and asking him to fill up your jar of clay to get rid of, instead of being full of pride and excuses and greed and selfishness, to empty ourselves and to be filled up with the spirit of God in our lives. But to do that, you have to do number three. When God provides, you can't lose heart. We do not lose heart. I share that because I think we got a slide for that. When we don't lose heart, Part of what happens in that moment is that we have to make the choice of whether to turn to him or, or away from him. 
I want to show you through the rest of 2 Corinthians here what Paul is getting at because Paul knew how destructive sin was. He goes on and says this, we are hard pressed on every side. Anybody been hard pressed lately? Hard pressed on every side, but you don't have to go hide in a bunker somewhere and live as a monk or a nun for the rest of your life unless the Lord calls you to do that. Instead, you can know, but not be crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. Because he died, we can have hope that no matter what we're faced with in life, he is going to be with us and we will never be alone. Verse 11, for we who are alive are always being given over to the death for Jesus' sake. So that because we live for him, you're going to have to go through death and hardship in this life. Obadiah's wife ends up in the position that she is in because she served the Lord, not despite it. But when she turns to him, God provides what she needs. Look down to verse 15 in this passage. All this is for your benefit, so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. And your greatest time of despair is the time where people can see God fully at work and bring glory to God. When we lost a child, I had more people come to Christ when I just get up and speak because they saw, like, nobody's impressed when everything is going great in your life and you talk about how you're living for God. <laughs> nobody's impressed by that. They're, they're amazed when a human who is going through the worst seasons of their life talks about the hope that they have in Christ because they're leaning on him and he's what's sustaining them. And by turning to God rather than the way it got me through the loss of a child, it got me through that season where I had a flood in our house and my son had jaundice and all of those things. And you know what happens? Each time you do that, this is a series about living on the edge of faith. Each time you live on the edge of faith, God grows your faith a little bit more and a little bit more. I always talk about, we love Joshua chapter 10 because Joshua got to see calls on God and the sun stood still. But everybody forgets about the nine chapters before and the Torah before that, where Joshua had to grow his faith enough to even pray a prayer like that. Part of growing in the faith is this process of two steps forward, one step back, three steps forward, two steps back, sometimes four steps forward, seven steps back, 10 steps forward, right? Like there's this process of growth and surrendering those areas of hurt and pain and suffering into our life. Verse 16, therefore we do not lose heart. Paul writes, though outwardly we are wasting away, and he was, he will be imprisoned for his faith. He will be beaten. He will be berated. He will have all kinds of horrible things said about him. His physical body will be destroyed because he's serving the Lord. Yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. He writes it with pure joy to the church in Philippi around 60 AD while he's in a prison cell, probably standing in his own raw sewage. How can you do that? Because your joy, your hope, is not dictated by your environment. No matter what hardship that you're facing, that when the Spirit of God is in you and overflowing in your life, that's the greatest opportunity to see God at work. When we prayed those prayers and God showed up and provided the church the finances to buy the equipment, it didn't just help the church, it grew my faith. It grew the faith of the people in the church. When we were a three-year-old church and bought this building that used to be a Borders bookstore, it didn't just provide a building, it grew our faith. 
I can tell you every step of the way when no one was worshiping together in that giant auditorium at Clay Middle School, we move into this little building off of College Avenue and we're baptizing people in a horse trough out in the lobby. When we buy this building and we're calling on God to provide the finances, when we move in here and many people come to Christ and grow in their faith, and then when we send in the middle of a global pandemic about three to 400 people out of the church to plant other churches in addition to the like 19 multiply Indiana churches, we have to know that only God can provide in those types of moments. And it's where you can see God and in a celebrity Christian culture where we build ministries around personalities and books. I want to tell you that God is still on the move despite those things. And, and, and the, the simplest thing is to know that, that you're the same jar of clay that anybody up here is. The priesthood of all believers is for today, but you have to actually pray and turn to God and ask him to fill you up again so that you might overflow to not lose heart, as Paul tells the church in Corinth to do. Why? Verse 17, for light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. We have more to live for than just here and now. The Bible teaches us that, that we don't just have salvation today. This side of heaven, there's pain and suffering, but one day Jesus is going to return and the old order of things will pass. Everything will be made new. The story is not over yet. And when he returns, he's gonna set things right. And so verse 18, he says, so we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. So no matter what you're facing, what despair you're in, you know that this is not your eternal home. You know that one day when you see your maker, he will either get to say, well done, good and faithful servant, or he won't. And that's what we live for. But on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Because the story is not done yet. Any of you guys remember seeing uh, Avengers Infinity War in the movie theater for the first time? And I love, I love the ending of the movie because it's so shocking and nobody saw it coming at the time. And if you're like, oh, don't ruin it. I haven't seen it. It's been too many years. Give it up. <laughs> at the end of the movie, when everybody, like half of the population of the universe turns to dust, right? Oh, you ruined it. I, I remember being shocked and going like, oh my goodness, I can't believe that happened. What a great story. But I didn't go, oh, that's the end of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. It's all over. Why? Because I knew the story wasn't done yet. I, kn I knew that they were going to make another movie. And they did. And it was called Endgame. And it involved time travel. One of my favorite things in movies. And then you've got Thanos time travel. It was amazing. It was like the Lord made it just for me. But in that movie, and then he sets everything right and everything goes back. We know that when we saw that happen, that the story wasn't over yet. But sometimes when we're in the middle of hurt and pain and suffering in this life, we forget that this story's not over yet. The, the woman, the prophet's wife, her story wasn't over yet in her life. What hardships you're facing, if you turn to the Lord rather than away from it, your story is not over yet either. Now you don't get to dictate the outcome. You don't get to control your life. You have to lead with an open hand and trust that God knows better than you and that sometimes what you want isn't what you need. But when we live that way, our story isn't done yet, but we also know that the grand story isn't over yet. And one day Jesus will return and he will put the world right and there will be no more pain and suffering. The old order of things will pass away. Revelation 21, there will be no more tears in heaven. 
because there is no more pain and suffering. The lion will lay down with the lamb. We will have right relationships with Almighty God who we have lived against so often. There will be no more sin and pain and suffering, no more addictive habits. We'll be perfect in harmony with God and with other human beings. The IU fans and the Purdue fans gonna be slapping high fives in heaven. I know you can't see it now because we're all sinners. But when we get there, the relationships we will have, we, we've never understood. We've only got a glimpse of it this side of heaven. So the pain that we see, if you're sitting there and you can't suffer another day, do not lose heart because the story's not done yet. And 2 Kings 4, 7, she sells the oil and pays her debts and her sons were able to live on what they had. He provided exactly what she needed out of what she had in front of him. If we surrender and we turn to the Lord, he's not gonna give up on us. He sees right where we're at. But I don't know about you, so many times I try and fix my problems rather than praying to God first. But then finally, Elisha's life uh, ends like ours probably will. He physically dies. But even in his death, God will produce life. To demonstrate it was never about Elisha, 2 Kings 13, much later, verse 20 and 21, we sing this song that has these verses about this, and we don't have any idea what it's talking about, but we sing it because it's a really cool song. And I want you to know what you're singing about, the power of Almighty God. Elisha died and was buried. He did all these miracles, so many that we're not even going to have time to dive into it. We're getting to the floating axe head next week. Don't miss it. But he did all these miracles, but he still died and was buried. Now Moabite raiders used to enter the country every spring. Once while some Israelites were burying a man, suddenly they saw a band of raiders. So they threw the man's body into Elisha's tomb. When the body touched Elisha's bones, the man came to life and stood up on his feet. Wouldn't that freak you out? The God of the universe, even in Elisha's death, can still use him to bring life. And I want to tell you, in the dead parts of your life, that God can still produce life-giving moments and people can see and experience the overflow of the Spirit of God in your life if you surrender in those moments. But that's the choice that you have. We don't know the story. We don't know the outcome. We just have the choice of whether to live on the edge of faith and surrender those moments to Him. And I want to end uh, with a couple of stories. The first one is this. I, I was preaching this in the 9 a.m. service and this guy came over to me in the prayer room and he said, like he was in this this last week, that his kidneys were had failed. He'd been at the hospital, and, um, and and he wasn't supposed to get better. And he had some disease where his muscles and his skeleton system was not working properly. It has a name that I was unfamiliar with, and it was like very debilitating, and no hope. It was caused by some addictive habits that he had had. And he said, I prayed this last week and he went back to the hospital and all those physical ailments were gone. And this is his testimony, not mine. So I'm just relaying it. And he gave me permission to do this. But here was the thing. I was like, that's amazing. Uh, you know, how, how long have you been a Christian? He was like, oh, I just became a Christian last Sunday. I was like, what? And you prayed that prayer? He goes, that's the first prayer I ever prayed in my life. And so you may be sitting there and you may be thinking, I, I, I don't know how to pray. I don't know what to say. I don't know how to turn to God. I want to tell you, he's going to be faithful to right where you're at. Even those of you who have turned to him many times and yet you have turned away recently. And you've gotten back into some things that you know you shouldn't be involved in. 
He's not going to hold judgment over your head if you turn to him. Repent of our sin and ask for his help. He will hear your prayer no matter how long you've been praying. I want to tell you guys that in every step of my life, when I've turned and actually was intentional about praying, Lisa and I'd be the first to tell you, we've had moments in our marriage where we were seeking uh, wise Christian counsel for help. And the biggest thing that we've ever done is when we did that, but we prayed first. And we just begged for God's help. And God has always shown up. In the times where we've struggled as parents, when we call out that time, when we have broken relationships and friendships, when we pray for reconciliation, when we're struggling with how we're going to make ends meet or that next decision that we've had, if we invite God into that experience, he's not always going to give us what we want, but he's going to give us what we need. And so I want to give you the opportunity this morning to turn to him rather than waver him and believe in hope yet again. Because when we talk about a million people for Christ in the state of Indiana before we die, the greatest thing we could do to achieve that is to pray to call out to him. And that's what March for a Million is all about. Register today, man, because we're gonna see that place packed out this year. We're having all kinds of uh, churches from the city this year participating and helping lead it. And I can't wait to see what happens, but we gotta do something. And when I say a million people for Christ by the year 2050, we, we, we clap, but most of us don't think that's really possible. I wanna tell you, the God that created the universe, that part of the Red Sea made the sun stand still, that provided the oil in these jars when the woman is at her lowest of her lows, he still worked today if in our despair we turn to his hope and we invite his spirit in. So let's do this together. God, I first pray for us as a church family. This giant vision you've given us to plant churches all over the state, to work in tandem with other life-giving churches, to call out to you, to change our state, to change our habits, change our workplaces, change our communities, change our schools and our neighborhoods and our homes for you, Jesus. We, we rely on you. We can't do it. Only you can do it. So please help us, God. Give us a renewed vision and a fresh anointing of your spirit in this life. And then I pray for those of us, God, who have just stagnated in our faith, who have turned away from you, or maybe who aren't even a Christian who came here this morning, have heard the good news that they could know you, they could live eternally in heaven with you, they'd experience your spirit at work now if we repent of our sin and receive your salvation and grace and mercy. And so whether it's to recommit your life or to commit your life for the first time, pray this with me. God, I need you. I don't want to do this life anymore without you. Provide for me. I turn to you in this moment rather than away from you. I surrender everything in my life to your Lordship. Pray, I repent of anything in my life that's not of you. I receive your, your forgiveness. I love you, Jesus. I give you my life. And I pray this in your name and all God's family said, amen.